A false fact, as the saying goes, is an injurious thing. What's a false fact, and why is it an injurious thing? Good questions. Today I'm going to talk about three false facts about the Gospel of John. Now a false fact, as I'm using the term, is something that's taken to be a fact. And because it's taken to be a fact, it's not questioned. Nobody, nobody wonders if it really is a fact. Nobody asks about that. And then it's used as a basis to build theories upon. Something that's recognized as a theory can be questioned and tested, but something that's considered just to be a fact will then become the basis for other theories. And that has happened in Johannine studies quite a bit, and I'm going to be talking about that in my forthcoming book, The Eye of the Beholder. Today I'm just going to tell you what three false facts are that have taken hold about the Gospel of John. And these are then treated as data points. And you might be a conservative scholar and say, well, you know, I, I don't know, you know quite what to make of that, but it's just a fact, and so my theory has to acknowledge that. Well, it ain't necessarily so. False fact number one. There are many places in John's Gospel where it is difficult to tell when Jesus finishes speaking and the author, the narrator, picks up. There are many such places. Now, you can see how that would be used because people who want to argue that John engaged in what is sometimes called homiletical embellishment. Craig Keener uses that phrase, homiletic embellishment or homiletical embellishment in Christobiography when referring to John and that he put his own homiletical embellishment into Jesus' mouth. If, if we're often having trouble telling who's speaking, literally reading and having trouble telling who's speaking, then they could use that as just a data point and say, well, you know, does that mean that John was just uh, considering himself inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he thought that it was okay for him to put his own homiletical embellishments into Jesus' mouth. But it's a false fact. There is literally only one place in the entire Gospel of John where it's difficult to tell where Jesus finishes speaking and the narrator picks up and comments. That is in John 3. It's, um, it's, it's a rather famous passage where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and saying, you must be born again. Somewhere along between about John 3.15 and, uh, and verse 21, probably the narrator picks up. But there are no quotation marks in, uh, in, in Greek, and so... It's, it's not marked clearly. I have my own idea about where it is, but the point is that is unusual. In fact, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, the author is actually very careful and shows that he's not at all thinking that it's okay to meld his own comments with Jesus' words. So, for example, in John 2, where Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The narrator then says he said this speaking of his body. So he distinguishes his own comment about what Jesus was saying from Jesus' comment. He does this in several other places in the gospel as well. And these are called asides, that he speaks aside to me. This is what he was talking about. So if on one occasion he begins commenting on Jesus' words and doesn't clearly mark the end of Jesus' words, that is a very weak argument that he felt free to put his own words in Jesus' mouth.
false fact number two. There are many places in John's Gospel where Jesus himself makes puns in the Greek language that only work in the Greek language. And that they're, they're, you know, specific technical puns in the Greek language. Now, why would this even be a problem? Well, it wouldn't necessarily for John's full historicity. Uh, but there is something of a controversy about how often Jesus spoke Greek or whether he spoke Greek. Some scholars will be very adamant about this. that he's, He must have always been speaking Aramaic. He was never speaking Greek. There's legitimate scholarly pushback on that, though. Stanley Porter, for example, has argued that Jesus... Uh, did speak Greek and may even have been speaking Greek even in, you know, private conversations with his disciples. Um, Peter J. Williams has also argued that Jesus spoke Greek and was speaking Greek in some of these places. So uh, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be an issue anyway, but the way that someone like Bart Ehrman will use it is to say that, uh, well, they're all, you know, if Jesus makes a pun <clears throat> in Greek and and Jesus didn't speak Greek, and he must have been speaking Aramaic, if that event occurred at all, if that dialogue occurred at all, then John probably invented it and made Jesus look like a real, you know, a punster or someone who made plays on words, because John likes plays on words, but he, he invented what Jesus says there and puts it into Jesus' mouth. And you can imagine that if there are lots of these places, then Someone like Ehrman will push that in lots of places. Uh, Ehrman himself generally pushes on the one. As before, there is literally only one place <clears throat> where in technical terms it can be claimed or even attempted to, to be said that Jesus makes a pun that works only in the Greek language. This is again in John 3 that he says to Nicodemus, as we've usually heard it, you must be born again. The word he uses there... Uh, could be born from above. And the, the common theme is that we say, like, take it from the top, from above, from the top, from the beginning, okay, again. Um, and so the idea is that Jesus appears to be saying you must be born from above, and then Nicodemus misunderstands him and says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter again into his mother's womb and be born? Isn't that cute? Nicodemus is misunderstanding him, etc. Now, I'm going to say right now that um, along with the famous scholar, uh, Yoannine scholar Brooke Foss Westcott, I have some doubts about whether either John or Jesus intends a pun there. I think maybe we're just seeing it because we think it would be cool. I think it may just be intended to be born again um, and that and that the scholars are maybe reading in the pun there. If there is one, Nicodemus itself is a Greek name. Nicodemus was a member of the Jerusalem elite and uh, could very well have understood uh could very very well have understood Greek, so they could have been speaking speaking Greek. But in any event, that's the only one. And this will get folded into a more general idea that there is a theme of misunderstanding in John. So, for example, when Jesus says to the disciples, I have food to eat that you know not of, aha, you know, then they say, has anyone brought him food while we've been gone in John 4? And, and they misunderstand. But of course, that, that just Jesus using a metaphor. You can see that right in the English. That's not some technical Greek pun. Okay. False fact number three. There is only one place 
in the Synaptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus sounds like he sounds in John. So instead of saying there are many places when there's only one, this is saying there's only one place when, in fact, there are a lot. Now, that one place that scholars will you know, rather reluctantly acknowledge is pretty significant in itself. It's known as the Yoannine uh, thunderbolt out of a clear synoptic sky that suddenly in the Gospel of Matthew, here's Jesus talking and sounding like something straight out of John. It's kind of cool. Matthew 11, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. <clears throat> so there you get these themes that are supposedly Yoannine themes of needing to know the Father through the Son. You even get some of that repetitious style that is uh, considered Yoannine. And that's a pretty significant data point in itself, because if that's all the way that the, the person spoke who wrote John and Jesus didn't really talk that way. What's it doing in Matthew at all, even even once? And nobody thinks John wrote Matthew. Maybe Jesus really did talk like that. But in fact, that's not the only one. Um, in there are a number of places where you have very similar sayings in John and in the Synoptics, but set in different settings. And let me just warn you right now that then scholars will add an ad hoc. Uh, corollary or epicycle to their theory. Oh, well, John may have known of uh, synoptic traditions and transposed them into a different setting. So heads, John loses, tails, John loses. If we don't find anything that's similar, we say, see, Jesus didn't really talk the way he talks in John. If we do find something that's similar, we say, oh, John must have known somehow about this synoptic tradition, and then he grabs it, he moves it to a different setting. What is this failing to acknowledge? Hey, Maybe both John and the synoptics are talking about the same person, Jesus, and they both know how he talked, and this is how he talked on more than one occasion. So I'm just going to give you a few of these other examples, and there are more coming in the eye of the beholder. So here's one. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, famous saying, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Matthew 7, 7 from the Sermon on the Mount. Compare from the Farewell Discourse. Until now... You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 16, 24. It's the same, it's the same saying, right? But in completely different settings. Well, maybe that's how Jesus talked. You know, people do repeat what they, what they say. The teachers do repeat their sayings. Here's another one. Matthew 10, this is the commissioning of the twelve. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10, 24 to 25. Now get this, two places in the farewell discourse. So John himself is already telling you that Jesus said this kind of thing more often, more than once, um, even twice on the same night. John 13, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's talking about the foot washing. John 13, 16. Then later, John 15, 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All right, so this is very similar to if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, 
how much more will they malign those of his household? It's very similar to the, what he says in Matthew 10 about if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Well, he may very well have said that more than once. Here we find uh, a type of saying that's actually found in more than one setting in the synoptics themselves. Matthew 10, 37, <clears throat> whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, now, but then check out in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, also Mark 8, <clears throat> if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, very famous setting. Even in the synoptics, we find Jesus apparently saying it more than once. <clears throat> and now, John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. So again, you've got to follow me. And he's thinking of his death right there in John 12. You've got to be willing to be where I am. In fact, being where he is is not necessarily a comfortable thing. And you must be willing to give up your life. Very similar, completely different settings. That's during Passion Week in John 12. So uh, back in 2018, I did a debate with uh, Craig Evans, Director Craig Evans. And he said, we have virtually nothing in the synoptics, there's this one passage in Matthew where Jesus sounds like he sounds in John. Uh, and, and so what's going on here? You know, is it just a different Jesus? You know, of course, he doesn't think that. He's saying that John has made very substantial alteration to the way Jesus speaks and even is inventing things merely based on teachings that he knew about, but uh, not really being historical teachings that Jesus recognizably uttered at the time. So that they're going to take that and, and run with it. In my book, The Eye of the Beholder, I have several chapters on this question of how Jesus sounds in John. Because this false fact that there's virtually nothing in the synoptics where Jesus sounds like he does in John, and Jesus sounds so different, uh, is, is something that's just taken hold on people's minds. Now, I don't deny that there are some differences between the way that Jesus sounds in John and in the Synoptic Gospels. <clears throat> in fact, one of them is that tendency to repeat that right in the same discourse, Jesus will repeat himself a lot in the Gospel of John. You can think about that. Um, one way of paraphrasing that is completely legitimate is just to shorten somewhat in order not to record, you know, every repetition. And so that repetitious style could well be something that was shortened for purposes of memory uh, as recorded in the synoptics. But then that doesn't mean that there's anything non-historical on either side. That's just one possible source of differences. But I want to I, I want to dig into this. So I have I have three different chapters on different aspects of this claim that Jesus just sounds so different and that this calls John into question. What does that really mean? What are what are some of the specifics that are involved there, including specifics of language? I had uh, scholars who are knowledgeable in Greek check over those chapters in particular so that they could you know, catch if I'd made some kind of mistake concerning the language and, and you know, vet them. And, that, you know, they did, they did not. They did not say, 
I mean, they checked them, but they didn't say, oh, you know, you made a mistake there or anything of that kind. So I wanted, I wanted to check that out. But as far as I know, the eye of the beholder spends more time than other contemporary similar books on that issue of how Jesus sounds. So those are three false facts. There are more, but first false fact, there are many places where it's hard to tell where Jesus stopped speaking and the narrator picks up. Nope, there's only one. Second false fact, there are many places where Jesus makes uh, highly specific puns that work only in the Greek language. And so, you know, what does this mean? Does this mean we have to commit ourselves to Jesus speaking Greek all the time? And there's actually only one. Third false fact, there is only one place in the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus sounds like he sounds in John. There are actually a lot of overlaps between the things Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels and the way he, he sounds in John. A lot more overlaps than scholars have generally acknowledged. Within the next week, I hope to have a release date, a specific release date for the Eye of the Beholder. When I have that, I'm going to do a video just talking about that, maybe going a little over the, the organization of the book, telling what some of the highlights are. And I'm, I'm contemplating probably mentioning the, uh, some of the endorsements that I've received, not reading them, but some of the names of some of the endorsements, endorsers that uh, have chosen to endorse the book, The Eye of the Beholder. So be sure to hit subscribe and hit the bell to get notifications. You can also subscribe to Lydia McGrew Author on Facebook and get notifications of that so that you get the announcement of the release date for the Eye of the Beholder, the specific release date, hopefully early in the month of March.